Good day and welcome to today's College Sports Communicators Live webinar. We are pleased to offer this session on working with soccer statistics and stats rules. Thanks for joining this important session as we discuss ways to assist CSC members in all areas of preparing to be a game day soccer statistician and in helping you understand the game rules and statistical rules you need to know. Our presenters are leading soccer statisticians with extensive experience and they are here to offer their thoughts and expertise and take your questions. We welcome your questions at any time. Just place them in the Q&A function of this Zoom. A reminder that this is not a how-to training session for using software like NCAA Live Stats or Presto Stats, although we may comment on those occasionally as they have special applications on certain stats. I'm Robert McKinney, Assistant Athletics Director for Communications at Willamette University and a member of the CSC Professional Development and Education Committee. I will serve as our host for today's webinar and moderate it. As a reminder, we are recording this webinar and later on the CSC website and on YouTube page, you can watch it as an on-demand session. Please invite fellow current CSC colleagues to listen and watch this too. We've got lots to cover, so let's get underway. And again, we appreciate you for joining us today. Now, here are our guest panelists. First is Matt Holmes, NCAA Assistant Director of Media Coordination and Statistics with Soccer. He works with Division I Men's Soccer and is the editor of the Soccer Stats Manual. So he definitely has expertise in our area for today. Next is Christopher Scholes, University of Kentucky Associate Director for Athletic Communications and Public Relations. And our third panelist, Chad Tuaro, freelance statistician and a former CSC employee working in college athletics. Again, as we get ready to get underway, we are going to be covering several different topics. We're going to start out with some pregame things to do before you get underway with hosting and keeping stats, some needs for sports information directors. We'll go over some of the basic things and then deal with some uh, tougher, difficult plays. And we know that many of those deal with goals and assists, but there may be a few other topics. And then we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, troubleshooting and how to deal with some things throughout uh, the season. But let's start out with issues that deal with pregame setup and what types of personnel you need, et cetera. And for that, we're going to start out with Chad Tuaro. Thanks, Robert. Uh, so essentially for the setup, when we're looking at just the statistical side of things, it's going to depend essentially on what kind of software you're using. Uh, having utilized both Genius and Stat Crew myself as a so former soccer contact, I can say that when in the Stat Crew days, I essentially did most of everything myself of doing the statistics along with any other uh, CSC duties, uh, game recaps, social media, it was kind of a catch-all. Catch it's a little bit more difficult to do that when you're, you are using Genius uh, due to the nature of the touch screen or point and click. It's usually quite helpful to have a spotter for that one. So getting that uh, situated for a personnel standpoint is pr is pretty important. And then, you know, as Chris and can uh, elaborate a little bit more uh, when there are additional duties such as uh, TV crews there. There's uh, the necess necessity of more people expands. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Um, obviously, being uh, with the University of Kentucky, we have uh, a great affiliation with the SEC Network and ESPN, and they obviously do a lot of great things for our teams. It also does mean that we're going to have more manpower that is required for our matches. And so at Kentucky, we have a four-person stats operation that we consistently use. Uh, we have one person, as Chad elaborated, that is inputting. We do use Genius here at the SEC and at UK. Uh, we have someone who is helping them spot what is going on and calling out that information so that they can key it into the software. And when we get to complicated plays, can assist them with the inputting of that information. We have a stats person that is in between the two benches on the field that is communicating to the bench. Really two main things. One is substitutions for each team, and the other is essentially serving as the mouthpiece for the fourth official. If we have to have time that 
is put back on the clock if we need to get information as to who a card was given to, what the reason the card was for, or anything that the fourth official needs to communicate to our press box. And then the fourth member of our stats crew is kind of a miscellaneous member, and they do all the tasks that we need for them to do that are not regularly assigned. So they're helping with calling if we get a complicated situation. They're looking at a replay monitor to determine a goal or assist. They're helping make that decision. Um, they're communicating things to our public address announcer or to our video board operators as to who's going to be coming into the game and exiting so we can put that on the screen. So at Kentucky, we do have a four-person operation for our stats crew. I want to step in real briefly here with what we do here at Willamette is we have two stat callers, generally one on each side of the field. Uh, coming out of COVID, when we initially had to use headsets to be socially distanced for a number of our sports, we discovered that we can move people a ways away and having one on the opposite side of the field makes it a lot easier to see what happens on that side. And especially at night, it, it can be a lot more helpful. We have lights, but that really, really does help with that. We use our scoreboard operator that's right by the window where people check in because we're at field level. So we use them to deal with the substitutions and then I'm usually inputting. So they let me know who to put in. So that's another person that we're utilizing that's not normally um, a sports information person. And I'll let uh, Chad kind of move us on maybe to whatever he wants to move on to next among the, the pregame issues. Possibly, um, you know, just are there some different roles that you find your people do? Yeah, so utilizing Genius, which is what I've done most recently, is usually helpful to have the spotter that Chris Chris had mentioned. Uh, having done a lot, of, a lot of the inputting, there are points where your head is buried into the into the screen and things can be happening. So having that extra set of eyes, and as Chris alluded to, having someone on the on the sideline level to communicate substitutions as that can become really arduous at a point where everything is happening at once and then all of a sudden, oh wait, I don't have these people in because he didn't have he didn't queue up the subs. Uh, I have taken a pretty minimalistic, uh, view on that because different schools have different amounts of re of resources. So for me, having the spotter, having somebody that is consistently key, uh, communicating substitutions, and as Chris also alluded to, the reasons for cards and who specifically got the, the cards, because that's something you're going to have to reconcile at the end of every game. If you have the numbers, as Chris <clears throat> mentioned, at, like he does at Kentucky and maybe in the SEC, Having an extra person that can look at replays, et cetera, when you're trying to figure out if there was an assist or a second assist. The great thing about that is, although here at Willamette, Chris Sabato, our other sports information person, runs the webcast, and he can show me a replay of a goal, but I, that means I'm not paying attention to what's happening in the game while I'm doing that. So that's a great resource if you have the numbers of people to do it. Want to have one I, Robert, you, sorry if I may jump in and out. I'd like, also like to add that uh, – a nice benefit of soccer season, both being the first one that starts up at a typical university, is when I was a soccer contact, what I liked to utilize it for was a training opportunity. In my view, experience doing statistics across the, the gamut of NCAA offered sports, I find that soccer is the the easiest to pick up because there are a lot fewer necessary inputs and a lot fewer ways to go awry if something uh, is com is complex uh, compared to, to other sports. So I liked to use it. Like I, I listed the minimum amount of people that I would use that can function, but I also liked to use that as an opportunity for students to maybe try inputting, maybe try to do subs table or spotting just to learn the sport and develop uh, a group of usually students who I knew that I could trust as the school year wore on. Yeah, good point. Um, if for just a moment, maybe Christopher, if you could talk to us, uh, Chris, just a little bit about testing everything up front, making sure everything's working. And then we did also want to remind everybody that at the moment in the NCAA, there is no overtime during the regular season, but it's still there for postseason. Uh, when we get to some NCAA information, and Matt may comment on that too. But Chris, fill us in on just making sure that we're ready to go. Yeah, we're ready to go. And and these are things that I will tell you at Kentucky, we like to have it ready to go two hours prior to the match. 
Um, we are typically arriving on site two and a half hours prior. That may seem extremely early, and that's understandable. Um, at Kentucky, we do have probably a lot more complexities to our game day operation than you may have at some of the other levels of college athletics. So kind of take what I'm going to say with a grain of salt when you're working through what your system may look like. But we're getting on site, and we're making sure that um, our stat systems are up and running. A lot of people will be, the first question you're going to get when you walk in is, do you have the starting lineup yet? Uh, do you know what formation they're going to be in? Do you know who's going to play? And do you know what position? Um, so we we like to make sure that we're in communication with our head coaches in terms of what those lineups look like, when we're expected to get those from them. And then if the opposing team does not have an SID that travels with any degree of regularity, communicating that up front and being, hey, your coach, when should I get the lineup? Are they going to bring it up to me? Should I go down at a certain time? Do I go down at the beginning of warmups, at the end of warmups? Maybe I'm not grabbing it from the head coach, but I'm going to grab it from this particular designee from the team. So there's a lot of those situations that you should work out ahead of time before you arrive. Then it's testing. Can I test the lineup and put a fake lineup in? And does it show up on the website? Is my TV XML feeding to the SEC network or whatever network you may have? Is it getting to them? Can they see the live stats for their broadcast? Is the video board getting it? So that when we put that information up on the video board for the crowd in-house and in-stadium to see, is that information correct? Is it from the last game? All that kind of stuff matters. So we like to make sure we have a fresh refire at least 90 minutes prior to kick. And then we refresh that system again, just to triple check it 10 minutes before kick, before we get into anthem and introductions. So that all can really help. And with with Genius also, it's it's great with using NLS to open your program early enough to see if there's an update available so you can get that done if you want to before that gets underway. Matt, we're going to bring you in now into the conversation with the NCAA perspective. And what are you most looking uh, for people to accomplish uh, in terms of helping you out? Excellent. Now, thank you, Robert. And thanks for having me on. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here on the webinar this afternoon. Uh, you know, we're at a good point in the season now where things are probably pretty static, but obviously, you know, not just for soccer, but for all sports, you know, staying on top of your roster in the NCAA stats system, you know, particularly in those sports that use NCAA live stats, so that when you download a game key and load the game, that, you know, that the roster is accurate. You know, jersey numbers are accurate, perhaps if you've had mid-season jersey changes and those kind of things and keeping those accurate. Chris talked a lot about, you know, the pregame and getting the lineup. I know a lot of schools use the official NCAA roster form that's available on the men, on the men's or women's soccer, the soccer playing rules page uh, at NCAA.org. You know, rule 3.2.1, that official form, whether it's the one online or if your coach creates one, should be submitted to the scorekeeper, you know, 30 minutes prior to the start of the game. And also they added a couple of years ago, there's name pronunciations on there too. So an opportunity to input name pronunciations uh, if you want to do that. So that form is available. You can use that. Many coaches and schools have created their own with the same information that includes, you know, jersey number, name, cautions, and those kind of things to keep track of that information. Um, but trading that stuff, you know, that's the game day. But if you have information to trade ahead of time or before you get there, players that you might know that aren't going to be coming, double checking with coaches who are there so you can determine, hey, these players aren't here, these players aren't in uniform, all the kind of things that you can eliminate ahead of time, you know, so you don't maybe accidentally put somebody into a game where then on our end, we might be dealing with at the end of the season or multiple seasons later, um, situations with people looking back for red shirts and those kind of things. If they're never available to be put into the game, you might not accidentally put somebody in um, who wasn't there or that they're trying to preserve a red shirt or that kind of thing. So those are kind of the things, you know, both kind of ahead of time, and then you can kind of double check on site to make sure things are good to go, to make sure you're accurately, you know, having access to the players that are available to play in any play in that given game. Thanks, Matt. Should also mention, you may notice when you go, if you're using NLS, because it does bring in those rosters and whatnot, um, I have to figure out, I think one of our games is missing from the women's because we had one less win or loss or tie than we should have had. So you can follow that and watch that. Uh, that can help you uh, remember in game in that particular program uh, that the only thing you should change is a player number. If you change their name, you need to in spelling for their name. You need to enter it as a new entry um, as, and, you know, deactivate the other one and add a new active one. If you're changing any name spelling, Chris, you want to fill us on in on some other um, SID needs. 
Absolutely. And now let me just go back one second here to Matt's great point. And I just want to add something that we've had multiple times already this year. It is good to know what your blood jersey number is. Each team will have a designated responsible person on either their equipment staff or their athletic training staff that if a player gets blood on the jersey, they will have to swap it out. Most likely that team does not carry 60 uniforms, one of each number. And so there is a designated number that is set aside for the person who will come back in the game. So let's say I'm wearing number one and I have blood. I will come back in with a different number it won't be the number of anybody else on the active roster but it will be a different number it's good to know what that number is it will save you immense amount of time later in the game so i just wanted to hit on that before I moved on here and talk to the next thing one of the things that i wanted to hit on robert was the importance of understanding soccer terms um, soccer i think along with volleyball has one of the most uh, diverse um, lexicons of the sport. And if you are not a soccer person, sometimes the sport can be a little overbearing because people will get very offended when you don't use the right term. Um, you know, in America, obviously, we're used to it being a field. Well, you may hear it called a pitch or, you know, some people may not know what the term dog so means in the sport of soccer. That's denial of a goal scoring opportunity, which leads to a red card, often to a penalty or a penalty kick. So one thing that I encourage people to do, especially if you're not really familiar with the sport and you're kind of being thrown into the fire or young and into the industry is soccer is now in our country a very readily access sport to watch on ESPN on ESPN you know the app on TV through the Premier League I'm not saying you have to sit down and watch six hours a week but if you sit down and you watch a game watch a half um, get kind of used to the lexicon of what it is do some research and I think it can really help you expedite the game in your head when you're scoring and you'll talk to coaches after the game or you'll talk to players and they may use words that you're not interested in or words that you don't have any idea about but it can help you piece together difficult situations at the end of every match and additionally to Chris's point having that breadth of knowledge of the sport gives you more credibility when you are handing an official box score to coaches who let's face it, it there there has not been a sport or a, or a coach who uh hasn't uh, enjoyed uh challenging uh certain statistical decisions that get made yeah so kind of going back to the the lineups we talked about this a little bit earlier but i'll kind of hit on this and then we can go from there robert if you're good with that but mm -hmm. um in terms of lineups every team does it differently and and that's something that you'll come across um, matt hit on this as well there are some teams that are not going to exchange lineups until the very last minute because they want to make it a secret and that's there's nothing against the rules it does They'll make our jobs more complex. Um, there are some folks that'll say, hey, here's our starting lineup. Give it to TV so they can get their graphics situated. Give it to the announcer so they can get their game board ready. But let's not publicize it until X amount of minutes till kickoff. Some teams will not exchange until you're ready to exchange. So I'm not going to give you my starting lineup until you give me yours and we're ready to exchange. Other teams that I've come across are they'll walk into the building and have their lineup waving like a flag and they're ready to give it to you. And that's great. But I will tell you that is definitely the deviation from the norm. But I would make sure that you have a conversation with the opposing SID or the visiting team liaison, whoever that may be, if they don't bring an SID and have that conversation ahead of time, who's going to get the lineup? Where am I going to get it from? Where's the best place to get it? And then how are you going to get ours in exchange? I think those are important conversations to have. It also gives you the expectation. If they come in and they say, hey, we're not going to exchange until 15 minutes before kick, you've got to mentally be ready to know that you're going to have to have a quick transition from getting the form, putting it in the system, doing your printouts, testing your live stats, and then getting the game started. There's a little bit of a tighter timeline there as a opposed to a team that may give it to you when warm-ups start 45, 50 minutes before the game, you're going to have a little bit more leeway to do some things, whether it be social media or other responsibilities that you have at your school on a particular game day. Thanks, Chris. I would add there too, if you do get one of the rosters and nobody's marked off, it's good to check. Or is there anybody we can scratch through that's not going to be suited today? They may still give you their regular whole roster. Sometimes it's only one person, but if you can remove them from your in-game, then you read you pretty much remove the chance that you'll give them a stat when they aren't even suited up. So I think that's important. And also one thing we have done here is we now have started to give each coach one of their own rosters at halftime to mark their starters for the second half. Sometimes they get much as Chris was saying, sometimes they do it right away, give it back. Sometimes they wait till almost the end of halftime to get, get that to us, but it makes it so much easier to reset the lineup. And every now and then they'll say, we're starting the same 11 we started the game with and we already know that. So we want to have Matt comment briefly on rules that impact, you know, the exchange of those rosters, et cetera. Um, at the moment, we know that 
the press box uh, still gets a lineup, but are there some changes to where other places don't get the lineup now? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is, you know, by rule, you're supposed to have the roster with the cautions and everything 30 minutes, but there's nothing specific in the rule book to starting lineups. So to Chris's point, that's why it's kind of important. You might get the line, you might get the roster form, the completed roster form to use the official scorekeeper 30 minutes out, but might need to have that conversation at 30. They may turn it in with the starters, but you might just get the roster at 30, but then still have to wait another 15 for the, you know, for the starters or that kind of thing. So yeah, but then from there, you know, and then they turn that into you as the scorekeeper. If the official asks for it, you can certainly share that with them. You know, print your starting lineups and then distribute that to you know the teams, your broadcast, whatever other media people you may have on site and need to distribute from there. And then, uh, you know, Robert kind of talked about halftime and you know the different. You know, Chris and Chad probably have ideas. The different ways to manage. I think it works different everywhere. But, you know, different best practices to kind of try and manage that halftime and resetting the starting lineup in the second half. You know, if you've got a process in place, you know, who to talk to and identify ahead of time, I think that's always helpful instead of, you know, maybe getting caught off guard with it. That makes sense. Can you talk uh, for us, Chris, briefly for people in your situation that are dealing with media, the importance of knowing the formation and how to learn that and how to present it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at the beginning of the season, everyone is, you, I'm sure everyone goes to their coach and say, okay, who, do you, what position do you want Will to play? What position do you want Matt to play? What do you want to list him as? There are going to be coaches that are going to shoot it straight with you and say, they're going to be defenders. They're going to be midfielders. There are also going to be coaches that go, well, let's list her as a forward slash midfield slash defender, everything but the keeper. And if that's on your website and at the preseason, that is accurate. That's okay. However, when you get into the season, you are going to need to narrow. And there are positions. In fact, if you look over my shoulder, Erin Gillen here, she was a forward and a defender. And she would go in between based off of matchups throughout the season. Now she's playing in the NWSL. My point being is though we, when the game starts, we need to have an idea of who is playing what position. For the formation, that's important for the media to know what type of formation they're playing. Additionally, it's important for your game notes. It's important for the statistical records of the game. We don't want to have a starting lineup where we have seven defenders, a midfielder, and a couple of forwards. That's not realistic. We know that that's not a true formation. So we want to make sure that we have an idea from the coaching staff what formation we're playing. I also think that's going to help you out when you stat the game. If they say, hey, Aaron's going to play left back or Aaron's going to play center mm -hmm. mid. If there's an attack, I know that my left back, unless it's coming from the left side of the field, I know my left back maybe doesn't have the highest percentage chance of scoring on a play where I can't see who it is. And maybe there's a player that she switched with and I can have a better understanding of what that looks like, makes it easier to stat the game, makes it less stressful, makes it less complicated as you get into these situations later in the game. So understanding formations, understanding who is playing in what position. Again, it doesn't have to be, well, we're going to play a box and we're going to play a triangle midfield. You know, it's just more of who's on the defense line, who's on the midfield line and who's on the front line and also that's important when you're talking at our level to television and you know webcasters to robert school's point people on air that are talking they want to have a good idea of what they want to have their board set at and so if you can give that information to them most accurately it's going to help them tell the best story of the match thank you i wanted to have a chad talk briefly with regard to fouls we with using genius have worked pretty pretty hard to include who committed the foul and who did they foul but Chad makes a good point, too, that that doesn't show up. I don't know if it shows up somewhere on the backside in NLS, but it certainly doesn't show up on the play-by-play. -play. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, so for the longest time when everyone was utilizing Stat Crew, there was just, you could. I, I believe it was a way you could edit it to isolate who committed a foul, but for the most part, everybody just put in which team committed the foul and there was a free kick. Now with the additional information that a lot is allowed for Genius to move the contest along, it asks you, similar to exactly the same as basketball, who committed the foul, who drew the foul, and you've got a free kick that you've got to reset. And usually it's a relatively quick restart uh, to get things going or people who have committed the foul, whatever led to the free kick, they've moved on and, and shifted away. So if you can get them, if you know it right away, great. But most important for doing stats for any sport is to keep the contest moving. So unless it's a card, just pick two players and move on. It It's not going to meaningfully affect anything in terms of the official statistics. You just need to put in that X team is taking a free kick and this it was because of a foul. Again, 
that is different if it's the card you have to get the card right and you have to verify those but uh, elsewise just keep it moving matt we have a question from one of our uh, viewers that deals with the goalkeeper decision on who the winning and losing goalkeeper they seem to recall that at least at one time that was explained in the manual. I don't know if it still is. You probably do know. But more significantly, when you do have to pick the goalie a decision, how do you go about doing that? It tends to happen automatically in NLS. But how do you go about doing that if you need to figure it out? Yeah, that's not an official NCAA statistic. So that's why we don't have any guidance on it. So we leave it up to scorekeeper, discre scorekeeper discretion on what they think. I know some people may default to kind of like ice hockey rules, which is, you know, the goal, the goalkeeper that was in when the game winning goal was decided or those kind of things. Um, but, you know, as we don't kind of keep track of it, it's really only kept track of the school level, but it's not an official in-state statistics, individual goalies, win losses or ties. That's why we don't provide any specific guidance because there are so many different, if this, then that, to have different things that we kind of do leave it up to the schools to kind of make sure that, to decide that and then to be consistent you know, kind of if there's a change uh, of goalies since, you know, so many just use the same goalie and there's not many change. It's not a position that's substituted very much. So that's why we don't have any specific guidance on that since it's not an official in-state statistic. Chad or Chris, you have anything to add there on, on GK winners? No, not necessarily. I think Matt hit it uh, pretty, pretty well. Although it is, uh, I, I do find it a little interesting on the NLS side that there isn't, I think to the point of the question was, there's not necessarily an option to even assign the win or loss afterwards. You just finalize the match and off it goes into the XML cloud. Yeah. And if you think it's different, you can go in and edit in XML. We don't have time to go into that here today for how to do it, but that is an option. I want to also mention that one of our Viewers talked about how with fouls showing up on the game box, they do work to try to get who committed the foul correct. That's kind of an NLS that will do that. So that anyway, you can approach that in different ways. And we're, you know, we hear different perspectives, which is really also good. Um, typically, the game winning goal in soccer is the goal that's one more than the other team finishes with. It's not like baseball where you get a lead and keep it. If you win three to two, that third goal is the winning goal. And if I typically I would go by whoever's in goal when the third goal is scored would be the winning or losing goalkeeper and go off of that. And at least you can edit it post game in the XML if you need to. Let's move on to just we're going to get into tough plays in a moment. Let's just talk in general. Uh, Chad, you want to start us out with regard to just when a goal is scored, just a regular goal. Nothing is complicated. It's not a tough play. It's just somebody scored and maybe there was an assist. Yeah. So it, as far as determining an assist, so. Somebody shoots shoots the ball. Ball goes goes in. Let's say uh, midfielder passed it passed a, a through ball in and to the to the cutting forward who got uh, behind the defense. Make takes a shot and keeper makes a save. But somebody else trailing, uh, not the passer, goes in and cleans up the rebound. In that instance, that's a continuous play. You'd give an assist to whoever got stopped, and you can also give an assist. Because because it's still a continuous place to the person who played the through ball versus Chris pointed out uh, in our preparation, a good point of if it's something that at that same forward makes it takes a shot, gets stopped and then picks up their own rebound and puts it in. That's their own effort. And then it would wipe out an assist for one example out of it. So the my determination out of assist is continuous play. It did the give of the ball uh, lead lead to a continuous action that created the goal scoring opportunity and ultimately the the goal if somebody you know if i am this super sweet if chris is this super sweet player and i just like do a little drop back to chris and he dribbles around three defenders even if i was the last person to give it to him this isn't ice hockey that goal is all chris's and it would be make the sc top 10 pretty pretty easily but uh, but I didn't because my pass didn't meaningfully affect the play. So using some of the judgment call of did that pass create that opportunity? The next thing that we have on here is with dealing with own goals. And we'll let Matt start out by uh, giving us the NCAA stats manual um, understanding of how we should be recording own goals and when those actually should be recorded that way. Yeah, this is one you know that we see a lot, and especially I think, as you know, Chris kind of mentioned with 
know, the prevalence of, you know, professional soccer options that are available to view, you know, in the United States currently, besides just MLS, but with the Premier League and international play and play from other countries, you know, NCAA soccer is a bit more lenient uh, on, you know, when an own goal is credited as opposed, you know, to international soccer that is pretty strict, where if a defensive player, pretty much if they touch the ball, if they're the last person to touch the ball, you know, that is typically an own goal in international and professional soccer. In NCAA soccer, there's a little bit more deference given to the original shot taker. So the original shot taker attempts a shot on goal and it deflects off a defensive player. You know, most of the time in NCAA soccer, that's going to continue to be a goal for the original shot taker. Um, in passing situations, kind of you're looking at deflections. You know, if a pass deflects off a defensive player, you know, that would be an own goal. But if a defensive player plays the ball, they dive forward with their head and redirect a pass, or they kick their leg out to try and make a clearance, you know, that would still be an own goal. I do see some people like, hey, there are almost no own goals in, say, soccer. There are, it's kind of, you know, on shots, it's a deflection to the original momentum of the shot. Is that what carried into the goal? You know, on a pass, if it deflects off a hip on a corner pass, you know, there wasn't a play on the ball, but if a defensive player makes a play on a, a play on a pass, a header or a kick it and redirects the original intended path of the ball through their active play on the ball, that would still be an own goal. So that's kind of one of the things to watch on a pass, but on a shot, kind of a deflection, you know, most deflections, even if they rechange the direction of the ball, those are going to can continue to be goals for the original shot player in NCAA soccer as opposed to where that may end up being an own goal in international soccer. Yeah. And back in my uh, SID days uh, or CSC days uh, with Miami, I recall one match where a visiting team had a player get behind the, de the defense, a through ball, and they're in one-on-one -on -one against the, the keeper. Takes a shot close up. Keeper makes an amazing save. The trailing defender is trying to get back into into position. The momentum off of the shot carried directly back into the defender on her chest or face or something, and that had enough momentum that that trajectory went back over. Even though it was going clearly away from the keeper, went off of the defender who's trailing, lofted over and into the the net, and that was a source of a, a lot of debate on goal for the shooter versus own goal. I took the the replay out of it and passed along to video to coaches. The coaches coaches generally are going to lean towards international rules on the on the own goal. So I think incorrectly we ended up at own goal when I moved it around enough enough people. But in Matt in your instance of your interpretation of that, that would actually just be a goal for the shooter, correct? Yeah, we had a, another a video that somebody sent me this year, something similar, where, you know, the shooter hit a shot and it went off the crossbar and bounced directly backwards and hit the back of the goalie and then bounced into the goal and had a question about that. And because that the original momentum of the shot is what led to that situation, that's a goal for the shooter. You know, the goalie wasn't making a play, didn't misplay a ball or anything like that. That was all still original momentum of the shot, which is kind of, you know, that's kind of the language in the statistician manual too, you know, about, you know, the moment, the original momentum of the shot carrying it into the goal. And we had a, a viewer ask a very similar question. So great that you guys handled that particular one. Um, we also have another viewer, not really question, but comment about maybe it should be important to keep track of goalkeeper wins since they do in other sports like hockey. So it might be uh, it's something to consider for down the road, but obviously not something we'll solve today. Um, briefly, Chad, will you talk just very quickly about how to record an own goal if you're in Stat Crew or in Genius? Absolutely. So it for the team standpoint, this is probably the one time we'll get semi-technical out of it. For a Stat Crew standpoint, you would put in uh, the shot command and then the team that took the shot and then TM instead of the jersey number. And that will signify an own goal that went that went in. You put in, of course, a goal. In genius, you would assign a goal for the for the team. And instead of selecting a player on the opposing roster, you just tap on the other team that scored or a team goal. One of the one of those two. It you basically get the team invo involved out of it. 
and that moves you along to getting the own goal. Yeah, you can go ahead and click whatever team's goal and then go to the other team and just click on their name, that big name box, and yeah. it will do that for you, which is what Chad was saying, uh, in addition mm -hmm. to being able to choose team from the list of possible people. Um, that covers a lot of, of those things. Again, I want to clarify, as, as Matt did, that a pass, that if it's deflected and goes in without the defender doing any action to try to kick at it or whatever, that that is still going to be credited to the person making the pass. That was something I learned recently and didn't know, so I'm sure there are a lot of uh, people that didn't realize that. So thanks for the clarification. Um, again, on the on the regular goals, we have talked about how if it's one shot is by one player and then it's immediately after it's saved or was off the crossbar, deflected by a defender, goes to a second player and they score, that first player gets an assist. And as Chad explained, if it's a continuous play, there may even be a through ball for a second assist. Let's talk about some other, other things that we need to watch during the game. What about a shot or a shot on goal? And how do we know when to record which? Absolutely. Uh, Chris, I think I am. Well, you, you can start on it, Chad, if you go ahead, Chris. I think okay. I've taken enough of the airwaves. Okay. So basically, this is the one spot, not the one spot, but one of the few spots in soccer where the scorekeeper has some discretion here. And this is where we ask you to use your knowledge of the sport to make a determination. A shot is anything that an offensive player lodges with the intent of scoring a goal. This is not a cross. This is not a clear. This is not a pass. This is very simply anything that is kicked in the direction of the goal with the intent of the offensive player scoring a goal. That is a very important distinction between a shot and a shot on goal. A shot on goal is something that is within the frame of the goal, and it has two outcomes. It either is a good goal or it is a save by the goalkeeper or the team. So a back save in that case, the defender clears it off the line if it got past the goalkeeper. If a ball hits the post or the crossbar, it is not a shot on goal. It is just a shot. There was no save that was required. The post or the crossbar did the job for the goalkeeper. Therefore, it is not a shot on goal. And there was no save that was required if it didn't go in. So that's a very important distinction. Just because it's close or because it was a good chance or because you thought it might go in, that doesn't mean it's a shot on goal. So there are oftentimes a lot more realistic scoring opportunities than there are shots on goal in the match. And again, as Chris was saying, if, the, if you don't have the intent to score, even that thing hitting the crossbar should not be scored as a shot. However, obviously, if it goes in, you would you would give a shot. Um, well, they'd be a shot, just not a shot on goal. Correct. Thank you uh, on that, Chad. And also, um, we want to talk about, we've talked about a lot of these shot rebound goals. One of the questions we had, Matt, was a confirmation that giving a secondary assist on maybe a through pass on one of those two shot plays is okay because the manual kind of says you can give an assist to who took the first shot, but it doesn't go beyond that. Correct. If it's an immediate replay on, you could have, if there's a shot, you, you can't have two assists on basically what would be a rebound goal. Um, you could have one assist. So if I take a shot, it's saved by the keeper and Chad immediately runs in first touch and kicks it in, then that would be a goal for Chad and assist for me. But the person who passed it to me on the initial would not get a second assist on that play. So there can't be any shot in between if you're on a two assist play where it's a bang, bang. Chris passes to Chad, who immediately passes to me. I score, I get a goal, and Chad and Chris each get an assist. If there's a shot, if I take a shot, then there's either no assist or there could be one assist to the original shot taker, you know, if it's an immediate rebound goal situation. And Robert, one of the things you'll hear, and this kind of goes back to my point earlier of knowing the vocabulary of the sport, that's APP, which is the attacking phase of play. Once that shot is taken and the keeper saves it, that's a new APP. You've started a new APP. And so that's where that assist gets wiped away because the goalkeeper's change has changed the APP. Also, Chad, uh, we have on here on our list of things for you to maybe give us a little bit of a discussion of when should we give two assists in general? Yeah, it still comes back to continuous play. And uh, apologies, I misspoke before on the, the rebound situation. So I think you see it quite a bit in the women's game where there's frequently a second ball that comes in off of, say, a set piece. So let's say you've got a you get a corner kick and the player who serves it in gets met in the gets met in the air 
by the target gets met in the air by another defender. They get ahead on it, but it's essentially just volleyed straight up in the air a little bit off. And then the follow-up gets gets put in. That would be a two that would be a two assist play because the play was continuous. Possession did not change, and it, it's just all one uh, attacking sequence uh, out of that. Likewise, if you're talking in the realm in free play, let's say somebody plays defender center back sees somebody sees left back streaking up to the left sideline, boots boots one that catches her down the left. She's waiting for numbers. Settles it, settles it up, and and crosses it into the middle for a header goal. That is one continuous play, and that would be two assists. Yeah, it's really important to remember that there's not necessarily a number of steps or how far your pass is. It's just does it feel like one continuous play, and to what extent did that pass lead to the goal? Chad, you might also comment about just one assist where we have a pass and maybe it's a breakaway, and you know the player that gets the pass either has to get by a defender or get by a goalkeeper or sort of runs past them. How should we know when to give an assist and when not to on those types? Sure. That's a great, that's a great question, Robert. And I would say, let's say the pass leads to the sequence where player is in and one V one on, on the keeper and manages to make a move, walk around the keeper and just kind of tap it in. Yes. The player technically made a move on their own volition, but the whole pass created them that opportunity where they could do what they wanted on the keeper. And therefore that would be a continuous play and in now player boots it ahead to the, to the target forward. And there are a, a, a set formation uh, in front of her with a few defenders and she makes a move, gets by and splits, splits two center backs, gets in blasts one upper 90 and scores. That's all that player. There were, players in position who had the play defended and that player just the ball handler, the score just broke them down unassisted goal. And you can see here where there's certainly um, subjectiveness involved in deciding on your own, how much did that play that pass impact, whether there was a goal. And it's really good to know uh, and be able to explain to your coaches and players why there's not an assist on a particular play. Um, I did that here a few weeks ago where we had one player follow up his own shot and they were really understanding the player that would have gotten an assist. When I explained that one player taking both shots meant there would not be an assist on the play. So understand it, be willing to ex explain it. Um, also um, I'm going to go back to Chris to talk for a moment um, about what to do and when to record a team save. So team saves are things that happen when the ball is kept out of the goal by the defending team, but it is not the goalkeeper that makes the save. So in the scenario that I'm going to play out here, I'm going to have Chad be my goalkeeper. He's an All-American goalkeeper. And Matt is Too the All-American all center back that I've got on my roster. If the opposing team led by Robert is coming in to score and Chad makes an initial save and the rebound goes right back to Robert and Robert tries to put it in the goal and Chad is in another position but Matt comes in and wipes it off the line and saves it and saves the game for us. That is not a, a save that it is credited towards Chad because Chad didn't make the save. It is a team save. And the team save is anybody, not the goalkeeper. So that could be your forward, your left back, your right back, your center back, your center forward, whoever that may be, the other 10 players on the field who are not the goalkeeper. Those are team saves. They are things that are saves that uh, prevent a goal. So they prevent a shot on goal from going into the goal and they are saves, but they are credited to the team, not the goalkeeper. And for the folks who have uh deal with field hockey, as well as uh, soccer and the nuances of that, you don't have to pinpoint who, what defender made the play. You just put in a team, a team save and click on the, the team that the team in, or put in team for save in that instance. You don't have to try to say, was it eight, nine, 17 i can't quite tell and, and you will sometimes also heard that you will also hear that called a back save as well a mm -hmm. back save and a team save are the same thing good to know and i know we had a game where we had two of those pretty close together on headers off the line i wrote down the numbers just so i had it later to deal with in a recap because those were big plays so you might think about that want to sure. go back to chris again because chris deals with a lot of media and he's got 
you know, SEC television going on. And what do you do when you're in a situation where you don't know for sure who scored the goal or you're not quite sure who had the assist? What are some of the ways that you can find that? Yeah, absolutely. Number one is we do have a replay monitor in our booth. And I realize that not everyone may be blessed to have that uh, capacity that we have, but that is something that is very important. If you have the ability within your school, within your shop to make a replay monitor ran to your station, it helps immensely because a lot of the times the most complicated plays are the things that are replayed the most during the broadcast. Soccer doesn't have something going on all the time. So when something does happen, they tend to overuse the replays and you'll be able to look at different cuts of the play, different angles, see things that you maybe could have seen from the press box model so that's number one is if you have access to a replay monitor or you have access to the broadcast of the game try to run that as close to your broadcast position as possible the second thing is is you need to have pen and paper ready or a spotter that is ready to go obviously when you have a complicated play there's going to be a lot of information that is flowing from a lot of different directions i know that at kentucky sometimes the pa guy will help us out sometimes the video board guy will start screaming things we've got fans that are within windows reach and you know this player's mom wants them to get an assist so they're going to scream back and yell things have pen and paper ready so you can write that information down and then decipher it later on in the moment I think writing down the players that are close to the play are important so that you can eliminate certain people or keep people in the mix. Hey, was this an assist by this person? Well, this person was way across the field that way, so it wouldn't have been that person. Having the availability to write those things down is very important. So we do have scratch paper, and that's also where you use the staff that Chad and I talked about earlier in the in the uh, seminar is that if you have students in these positions, this is a good way for them to learn the chaos of the moment, right? And you can tell them, hey, I need you to write down 16, shot 16 high, shot 21, save, assist to four, whatever it may be. And they can help you put the puzzle pieces back together as the situation is unfolding or when you reach more of a dead period in the match after the attack is over. Don't stop inputting. Don't stop play calling. Don't take your eyes off the match. Keep it going to Chad's point earlier about fouls. And just to kind of go back on that, we're not saying don't get it right. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is keep things moving. Go back and flag it and get it correct later on a replay monitor or talking to coaches. That's what we're saying is keep the system of the flow of the match going. And that's going to be your best opportunity to get the play right, as close to right as you can, and then go back and talk with people who have a stakehold in the situation and confirm it later, whether that be coaches, replay monitors, the players even can help you out some times or in our case if you have a fourth official they can radio through the vocero system to the center and say hey do you have a goal number because they actually are supposed to know who scored goals yeah and to chris's point my uh uh, mantra i like to keep with any standing any sport is you can't edit nothing so keeping the keeping it moving is so paramount to doing that even if you've got a even if you have an input wrong at the outset at least you can flag it or write down the input number or something and come back to it. But when you freeze up, that's when one uh, controversial play that you're not sure about becomes five missed plays. And then you're just scrambling to catch up. I will tell you that the most honest people, a lot of the time are players. They will tell you, Hey, you know, Chad had that goal or, Hey, I didn't touch it. Um, they actually tend to be more honest than the coaches who are thinking, okay, am I going to get this kid an All-America honor today by giving him a goal? How can I get this player an assist? Because I want to make them all conference. A lot of times the players, if you go down after, it'll be like, hey, did you get your head on that? Like, no, I didn't touch it, but it looks probably mm-hmm. really cool. And they'll be able to help you out. Awesome. Absolutely. Dad, if you have some more to add relative to what to do when it gets really busy or when there were three or four shots in a row, and also talk a little bit about in NLS, keeping track of possession. Yeah. So. I I think Chris hit the nail on the head. I don't have really anything else to add on the controlled chaos. Having somebody writing things down, having some kind of reference, that's perfect. That's exactly what you should should do. As far as possession with NLS, the way I see it is it's always going to be an estimate because sometimes things are happening. You're doing multiple inputs at once or worrying about substitutions. So it's always going to be a bit of an estimate. So with that in mind, there are four quadrants get the right team that has the ball, get the ballpark that the ball is is in uh, right. And I, I've seen a lot of people when they are starting up on NCAA Live Stats is that they have to follow the ball exactly where it is to do do go the old Simpsons reference of center passes to wing, back to halfback, back to wing, center, back to center, and they hold it. Like you get it in the general vicinity, the right quadrant with the right team with the ball, 
if it changes, whether it be possession or the location, move that over to the correct quadrant. Because when you're printing out the box score and it's showcasing the possession, it's going to say the it's going to break down the percentages for both teams and the for their possession what areas they possessed the ball most uh, when they do the field breakdown. So getting those four general areas correct and the team correct, that's what matters. You don't have to overdo things with the possession. Chad, can you also talk a bit about wrapping things up in terms of what you would do for printing out stats, involving the referee, whatever else might be the most important after the match? Absolutely. So as Matt pointed out, that it's no longer uh, – Post-COVID, it's no longer required to have the official sign. However, as cards go out, it's still good to verify with the officials all the same. So it's good practice to flag them down afterwards with a printed bo final box score before you hit finalize so you don't have to go back into NCAA Live Stats and edit the post-game XML. So one thing I make a point to do is before I hit finalize game or whatever the button has changed to now is print one and get the stats over to everybody everybody else that needs them, the teams, media for post-game, reporters, et cetera, and run the first one over to the officials and double check because the officials, they're probably going to be among the first to leave. Yeah, the thing I want to clarify there, you know, is it is still required to get that post-game verification on cards and the final score from the officials. They can just make that visually or verbally. If you have them sign it, that's great. They're not required to sign, but it is still required that you confirm post-game with the officials, any cautions, and then the final score. Not necessarily who had the goals, but the final score. We've got 2-2, two -two, you've got 2-2, two -two, bag and done. That can just now be done continuing out of code visually or verbally, uh, but that process still needs to be done however you decide to do it. Just a mm -hmm. signature is not required. Yep. Was there anything Thanks else you wanted to add, Chad? Did you want to add anything else, Chad? Nope. Okay. And Chris, do you have anything that you do a little differently? Is, you, or is somebody like flying with stats to TV or are they just watching live stats anyway so they know? Or is there anything special that you do post-game? We do try to make sure that we get off uh, the box scores as quickly as possible. And I think everybody does, but we are, we do have certain stakeholders that we want to have the stats first. So we want to make sure we take care of the coaching staffs first. That is particularly important at halftime. I think halftime, it's important that you get the coaches, the box scores as quickly as possible. I think post game, they can wait a little bit. Maybe they want to talk to their team. You know, some coaches, maybe they want to see it before they talk to their team, both fine. I would say at halftime, your important stakeholders are coaches followed by media members like television that maybe have to do a halftime show they want to get their graphics ready for that show they want to make sure that they have the minutes of the goals correct the shot counts correct if they don't have a stat monitor that's in front of them I will tell you that from a referee standpoint, uh, to Matt's point, obviously the referees do not have to physically sign the form anymore. Um, in the Southeastern Conference, our SEC coordinator of officials uh, uh, likes them to take a picture of the box score and send them to her so that they can have that confirmation and that goes to the league office. I think that's pretty common amongst the Power Five that I've talked to. I'm not saying all five Power Five leagues do it, but I think it is pretty common. And then additionally, we're confirming uh, accumulation cards and the types of yellow and red cards. So there are different types of cards. There's um, a red card that could be for two yellows. There could be a red that is given to a denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity or dog. So um, there's yellow that is for unsporting behavior. There's yellow that is there's different types of cards. And so I think it's important that when you're noting those in genius, you have the option to choose all of these different types of yellow cards. You're the one that knows what they are. And you can confirm that with the center. You can confirm that with the fourth. You can confirm that with the linesman on the near side. They all are going to be able to give you that information. Matt, be, before we close things down or maybe see if there are if there's a question or two, again, feel free to put something in the Q&A if you have a, a last minute question for any of our panelists. But Matt, if you could talk a little bit about what issues you find after games that people need to deal with the NCAA on with you guys in, in statistics that something needs to be changed or they need to make sure they remember to upload it. What are some of the things that that are issues for you? Yeah, I think, you know, we're in pretty good shape. Nowadays, I mean, I think we talked about some of the things that come up after games where people may want to make a review about, you know, adding an, adding an additional assist on a play. Hey, we went back and looked at it and the assist was number 12 instead of number two. Or, hey, we really did think that after going back, you know, in review, we do think that's a continuous play where two and 12 should have gotten the assist. 
So just inputting that thing in there, making sure that you're reviewing, especially if you had a situation like that where you think you've made a review, made a change in a post-game edit and submitted it, just cross-referencing what you have on campus versus what we have here at the NCAA. You know, it should, you make a post-game edit, you republish, it pushes to the NCAA. 90% of the time that works as intended, but sometimes something gets caught up in, there's an interruption in the, in your web feed or something like that where it just doesn't complete. So one of the things I just recommend in general, especially if you had a situation where you made post-game edits, is just making sure to cry and you've uploaded a new XML to your website or whatever the case may be. Periodically, once a week, once every couple of weeks, cross-reference what we have at the NCA versus what you have on campus to make sure that matches up. And then if it doesn't, we can begin to look, oh, we added an assist in the fourth game of the season. That didn't get to you. And then we can make sure that gets to us and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, the reminder, obviously, you know, the the discretion of the home team goes. So, you know, just because you're the visiting team and you discuss with your coaches and you think something should be added, certainly you can have a cordial conversation with your counterpart. But again, the statistical de designation and decision made by that home team scorekeeper, you know, if there is a back and forth, that person is final. And, you know, if they don't agree with your interpretation, you know, that kind of is just the way it is on that situation. So, but I agree with everybody to be, you know, cordial and that kind of thing. But that was probably the main thing is if changes are made, make sure you're cross-referencing. So what you have matches what we have at the NCAA um, throughout the course of the season, as opposed to the soccer season ends in December and we hear from you in April or something like that. We can fix it, but we prefer not to do it then. Also along the lines of participation. Thank you, Matt. A good explanation there. And a good reminder, you know, to check and keep your information up to date with whoever you're reporting to, the NCAA, NAIA, or in Canada, you know, just so that you know that everything is accurate um, at the national level. Well, thank you guys so much. We want to uh, give a big thanks to our presenters. Again, Matt Holmes from the NCAA, Chris Scholes at the University of Kentucky, and also Chad Tuaro, freelance statistician, but former CSC person. And uh, he's still obviously involved with us as a freelancer. In addition to that, we want to remind you that the webinar will be on demand later today. So share that information with your colleagues. We encourage you to check our website, collegesportscommunicators.com for updated information on what's on tap for CSC programming and continued education. And before we move on, I wanna look real quick. We had one more question that says, uh, uh, what makes a determination on whether to give a goal that's assisted or not based on making a move? Does somebody have more of a clarification of when to call it a move before we uh, close out? Uh, I'd say defenders in position and a player, the ball handler, breaks them down themselves. Uh, the pass didn't allow them the go to a spot where they won a foot race with the defender, and we're already in an advantageous position to get the inside and get a good opportunity. The defender was an actual obstacle that the ball handler themselves had to work around by themselves. Yeah, and we had one where we added an assist recently. At first, I didn't. Ironically, it was our goalkeeper coach who noticed it, but our player got a long pass on a breakaway and pretty much just kind of went, just went past the goalie. It wasn't even really a move. And mm -hmm. uh, so we went ahead and did give an assist on that play. Uh, Chris, do you have any other thing to add to that or did Chris kind of cover uh, what to use for determining if somebody think, did not get assisted? Yeah, I think Chad's right. It is more about the defender than it is the offender in this situation. It's does, does the offender, does the offending player, does they, do they make a move that then makes it an individual effort for the goal? You know, was the pass critical? Was it a critical part of the goal or was it just the next progression? I think that's the determination you get to make. And again, that goes to the ambiguity, right? Of I think it's critical. I think it's not. It's kind of, you know, the softball, baseball hit error thing. Um, but I think the big thing that Chad pointed on was correct. Just, did the offending player make a move that shook the defender? If so, then probably becomes more of an individual effort. If not, then I think you can give the assist in that spot. This is an interesting one directly from Greg Petkoff, who I think many people know. The question is, um, what about passing it over the goalie and then shooting it in? Should there be an assist still, or is that a, a big enough move that you should not give an assist? Did the player, uh, is, are they asking uh, the player chipped it over and then got to it on their own and got I in? Because so, they can't yeah. assist on their own goal. Yeah, south pass via a chip over the, or an imposition defender. Mainly a defender is what Greg was asking. 
Sure. Assuming it's yeah, self-pass and I'm interpreting correctly, you can't assist on your own goal. So I'd say no assist on that. Yeah. All right. So that is awesome. Wish we had some more time, but we're kind of at the end of our time. Feel free. I'm I'm assuming to be able to uh, email Chris at Kentucky, Matt at the NCAA Chad. May, you may also be able to get a hold of him if you have questions from me at Willamette. Uh, we do want to thank you again. Remember that this will be available on demand later today. Next Thursday on October 26th, there'll be uh, we will be offering at CSC a session on using social media data and analytics. There's all that information there. How do you use it? With more webinars to come yet in November. Stay tuned for those dates and the topics to be announced. We do plan to have one with regard to basketball stats keeping, so be ready for that. But for today, it was all soccer, and we have three tremendous presenters and a lot of people uh, watching us. We appreciate that. And for now, we'll just say goodbye, and thanks, everyone.